Well, welcome to City Life again. It's good to have you with us here this Saturday night. If you're visiting here for the first time, if you're here since we planted, it's good to be here worshiping with you, going through God's word together as a church family. We've been in a series here now at City Life since the turn of the year. So we've been in it for a while called Myth Busting, looking at the half-truths that hurt and the, and the distortions that derail us. So if you have your Bible, uh, you can turn to Matthew Chapter 18, we're going to be turning to verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, good news. There's Bibles in your pews. Maybe you got you version and you're swiping there. But while y'all do that, as Aiden walks up, Aiden, I don't know if you notice, he's, he's running the tech world back there with Dustin. He's training. So last week we talked about how we're called to invest in and cheer on the next generation. We got the next generation serving right now. The next generation is not JV. They are, they are on the team. And so we're, we're celebrating him stepping on. So I almost had to give it to your dad. I don't know if you would have got it if I gave him. It's a Starbucks gift card. <laughs> but we've been looking at, again, these half-truths that hurt us and the distortions that derail us. Because as Jesus says in John 8, when you know the truth, when you have the truth, when you apply the truth to your life, it'll set you free. But we've recognized that so often we can cling to and apply half-truths to our lives. Distortions of the truth that the enemy would give us. And when we do that, as it says in Galatians 5, 9, it can pervert the concept of faith and it can mislead the church. So we've been looking at all these different half-truths that sometimes we say to each other, sometimes we hold to. We've looked at the idea that love is colorblind. Women shouldn't teach. If you got enough faith, it'll fix anything. Don't judge. Right? Some of these are straight out of Scripture, and yet it can become distorted. But tonight I want to look at a subject we've all probably considered at one time or another, which is forgiveness. Forgiveness. How many by show of hands would say forgiveness is important? Good, good. We got a good crowd to work with. We, I don't have to explain that to you, but I think sometimes, whether it's being forgiven by God and by the people we love or forgiving others that we love, sometimes I don't think we grasp truly how important it is, and I think sometimes we don't understand how it works, if I'm honest, because of things like forgive and forget. You know, when I was a brand new believer as a senior at William & Mary, probably been saved for a couple months, and uh, I had two friends, and they weren't in a relationship, but it was, it was a male friend and a female friend, and, and they, they had a, uh, an issue that they needed to reconcile, and, and they were coming to me for spiritual advice. I'm like, look, I'm like three books into the Bible here. I don't know why you treat me like I'm King Solomon or Dr. Phil, but they, they came to me, and, and what she asked me was, if God forgives and forgets our sins, and she was like, do I have to forget what he did if I'm going to forgive him? Right? And where would she get this from? Well, she could get it straight out of Scripture. If you're reading Hebrews, you're reading Jeremiah, it talks about how God says, I will forgive their wickedness and never again remember their sins. And we're going to look at this verse tonight, but she, her problem, her issue was, I don't know if I'll ever be able to forget what he did, so I don't know if I can truly forgive him. I don't know if I could truly forgive him, and I don't remember what I said exactly, but I remember it was one of those conversations, you probably had them, where you're kicking yourself afterwards thinking, I should have said this, probably shouldn't have said that, should have said that differently. And I'll never forget that conversation. And, I, and they never reconciled. They never truly forgave each other and had the relationship they had before they, they had the issue. And it got derailed because of this idea of forgive and forget. And, and we talk about myth busting, and we're going to look at this but Jesus was in the business of, of myth-busting. Even myth-busting myths about forgiveness, like in Hebrew, excuse me, not Hebrews, Matthew, where I told you to turn. I'll meet you there. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, it says, Peter came to Jesus, and he asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? 
No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. You want some churchy uh, mythology about forgiveness. 2,000 years ago, uh, people subscribed to a belief that you forgave people three times. After three times, you don't have to anymore, right? Retribution is fair game. Now, where would they get this from? Isn't that baseball yet? Where does this three strikes you're out concept come from? Well, it came from the prophet Amos in the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament uh, prophet Amos, he prophesied God's judgment upon nations. And in the book of Amos and in his prophecies, he would say things like, here's, here's one of them. He says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Now, that was an ancient literary tool that simply meant they, they had sinned again and again and again. But the Pharisees took it as meaning that, that forgiveness runs out after the third try. Three strikes, you're out. So when you understand that, Peter asking seven times, like so often we think Peter, yeah, he's always putting his foot in his mouth, always saying dumb stuff. No, this is actually pretty generous. He takes the standard three, doubles it, and adds one. That's pretty generous. This is, I think this is pretty well thought out on Peter's behalf, right? Asking seven times. You think about our modern culture, right? Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, trying to do the George W. Bush, right? Fool me, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. Fool me four, five, six, seven times? Well, shame on your mama's mama at that point. Where's the shame going? Seven times. It's a lot of times. At some point, that saying, what Peter's getting in is at some point there's got to be a limit where you recognize people aren't truly repentant. They're not truly sorry. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, no, not seven times, but seven times times seven. Maybe your Bible you got in front of you says 77. The Greek is a little tricky here. They're not sure of the number. Kind of go back and forth. And I think it's ironic because what Jesus's point is here is that the number doesn't matter. That we're called to forgive without keeping count. It's not quantitative. It's qualitative. Like forgiveness should be a lifestyle. It should be a part of who we are if we're following Christ. But in light of everything we just talked about, That lifestyle is not easy to just adopt and start walking out. It's hard to forgive in that way, but we're called to forgive as as God forgives. And Jesus spells this out in the parable. It's like he knows what he just said is hard. So he's like, all right, let me give you a parable. Let me give you a teaching so that you can help apply this. So I want to read through the parable. It's verses 25 through 35. It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I'll pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. says, when some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant. I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. 
Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Let's pray and go home. (laughs) That's a heavy passage. It's a heavy passage. It's Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. When Jesus would tell a parable, what he was doing was explaining, this is what the kingdom of God is like. That's why it starts out, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to. So we know that in this passage, God is king, the king is God. That's the context, greater context. Uh, many translations where the New Living Translation said millions. I want to dig into that for a bit because I don't even know if that does it justice. Uh, maybe your Bible says talents. Maybe your Bible says denarii. Those aren't words we're very familiar with. You're probably thinking, I had a buddy that drove a GMC Yukon denarii. No, that's a denali. <laughs> denarii. Denarii, that's not a word we're very familiar with. That, that meant a, it was the equivalent of a day's wages. So in this passage, we're talking about the equivalent of six million work days. This guy missed a lot of work. I don't even know how you run up that debt. If you were to talk in terms of talents, it's about $600 million. I saw, I've seen some estimate. Others I've seen estimate up to into over a billion dollars. So when you hear millions, you think, oh, yeah, a couple million, I might be able to pay that off. No, we're talking about an insurmountable debt that this man owed the king, that he was in debt way over his head. It was insurmountable. More context. In that day, you couldn't just declare bankruptcy. They had what was called debtor's prison, where you'd be thrown into prison for your debt. They didn't have the ACLU back then, right? So this guy is pleading with the king. That's why he responds with, please be patient with me, and I'll pay it all. But when you reflect on the amount, you realize the king should have laughed in his face. It's impossible for him to pay off this debt. And as again, as we're looking at the kingdom of heaven, Shouldn't take long for you to think about your own life, right? Where my debt was my sin, of which the wages was was death, which I could never repay. And yet God forgave us. And so the king, rather than laughing in this man's face, would just say, I'll pay it off. Yeah, right. Instead of scoffing at him, the king forgives him. So fast forward as we read, and the forgiven man is confronted by a second man's debt to him. All right, so he'd just been forgiven of six million workdays, about $600 million dollars. The equivalent of what this man owed him was about four months of pay. So we're talking about thousands of dollars rather than hundreds of millions or a billion dollars. And he says, be patient with me and I'll pay it. Sound familiar? Right? We just read that a couple verses ago. But the man that had been forgiven so much more by the king, unlike the king, wasn't having it. And you know what happened next? Should make us pause when we read this. We struggle with forgiveness. It should sober us up pretty quick. Because the king catches wind of this, and what does he do? He reinstates the debt of the man who had been forgiven. Then he hands him over to the jailers, again, to be tortured until he could pay his debt, which we know he couldn't pay off. That's eternity we're talking about. That's that's hell we're talking about. You know, this reads, when you read this, it reads like something out of the Godfathers or or the, the Sopranos, right? And you might say, well, Jesus doesn't mean that that would ever happen to us. But if Jesus told that parable in front of you, would you say to him, you don't, you don't really mean that that could, that could happen to us, right? Have you ever prayed to our Father? Did you mean those words? Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. You signed up for it. Jesus says, Jesus says in verse 35, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Now, I'm not here to recklessly rattle cages, but we better recognize that for God, forgiveness is not an option. Forgiveness is 
Forgiveness is a requirement. It should be fruit. It's not extra credit. It's something that should be present in our lives. It's just, again, not a, a, a quantity of forgiveness, but the quality of forgiveness as a lifestyle should be present in our lives as believers. Jesus is saying in this parable that a transformed heart will give the same mercy and forgiveness that it's received. And if that fruit isn't present, it's a sign that there's still work to be done on our heart. There's transformation in life that needs to come. Because forgiveness, it's not extra credit. It's key. And it's so important we see in this parable. So we realize, man, I better get it right. And God doesn't leave it up to trial and error. He doesn't even just leave it up to a parable. We see forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And we see it through his life. We see it through scripture. And it doesn't look like forgive and forget as many people subscribe to. You know, see, the king forgave the servant. But when the servant was a fool and ended up back in front of the king, the king doesn't look at him and say, oh, I forgot what you even owed me. Or, I, I, I don't even remember your face. No, he remembered very quickly what he owed, and it got reapplied. Some of us may think, well, that wasn't very forgiving of him. He may not have truly forgiven that man who had, had owed him a debt. Why would we think that? Again, because mythology that's been built around verses like Hebrews 8.12. Now, Hebrews 8.12 is quoting Jeremiah 31.34. It's an idea that's stated throughout Scripture. So when I would tell you, when something is said multiple times in Scripture, pay attention because God means it. Jesus says something multiple times, pay attention. He means it. So God says this multiple times in Scripture. He says, I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Never again remember their sins. And see, the mythology that's been built around this verse and what I was told one day in Sunday school or somebody may have told you is that if you confess something to God, you repent of a sin. And you were to confess that a second time. Not because you recommitted it, but you were just going to confess it a second time that God would just kind of look at you like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Because it, it had been erased from his memory. He, he no longer remembers that. Says it right here in Hebrews 8.12. But here's the problem. The God I pray to, the God you worship, the God we worship, he's omniscient. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Omniscient means he knows everything, remembers everything, forgets nothing. He knows everything. And when I confess something, I don't all of a sudden strip him of his omniscience for this detail over here. I mean, just think about how this would play out. There are people in the Bible that repented and experienced forgiveness. Think about King David, 2 Samuel. We'll look at that in a bit. He confessed. He was given forgiveness. Or you look at uh, Paul and the violent persecution of the church as Saul in the New Testament. Right? He was forgiven for that. Does that mean God doesn't remember any of it? And when we get to heaven, be like, remember this? And he's going to look at us. No. I forgave that. I, I don't remember that. It gets weird quick. <laughs> and I think what we need to do is we need to look at the word that's translated remember in Scripture. In both the Greek and Hebrew in this Jewish context. Because when we hear in, in our context, in English, in, in our Western culture, when somebody doesn't remember something, it means they forgot it. It's just how we connect the dots when we read something like the word remember. But if you start to read your Bible, again, as we look at the greater context and content of Scripture, that'll get weird quick. Because <laughs> if you start your reading plan, you start in Genesis. Get to Genesis 7. Right? You get to Noah, the ark, and the flood. Maybe you're familiar with the story. Maybe you're not. God, God floods this region, right? He floods the earth, and Noah builds this ark, this floating zoo. 
This family gets on, there's a range for 40 days, and then it says at the end of Genesis 7 that they were in this ark for 100, I think 50 days, just floating around. The beginning of Genesis 8, what does it say? God remembers Noah. Like, time out. So God had Noah build this ark, right, and then for 150 days he forgets about him. And I think sometimes, you know, we subscribe, there's so many people on the planet he might, you know, he's thinking about them over there. They were the only people on the planet at the time, right? How could you forget about Noah and his family when they're being faithful and obedient to you? And maybe you would think, oh, I, don't, I don't even want to think about it. I'm not going to wrestle with it. I'm going to keep, keep reading. Very next book, Exodus. God's people, the Israelites, who he had chosen as his people, were enslaved and oppressed by the Egyptians in Egypt. And we're not talking for hundreds of days. We're talking for hundreds of years, generations. And it says in Exodus 2 that they cried out to God. And what does it say? God remembered the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And again, time out. Does that mean he forgot about this covenant he had made and while the Israelites were suffering and crying out, he wasn't even thinking about them, he had forgotten about them? Again, this gets problematic quick. This can rock you to your core in terms of your faith if you think you're worshiping some forgetful God who just kind of remembers and kind of forgets and then remembers again. But this word translated remember in the Hebrew and the Greek, it speaks to a person responding to something, reacting. There's a Jewish scholar that I was reading, and he broke it down this way. In the Bible, remembering, particularly on the part of God, is not the retention or recollection of a mental image, but a focusing upon the object of memory that results in action. So remembering in the Hebrew and the Greek speaks to a focus. You're focusing on something, and you're going to act on it. Biblical remembering is, is less about head activity. You can say it's about hand activity because it's going to lead to action. It's a focused response. It's why in Scripture when God remembers Noah or God remembers the Israelites or God remembers this or that, he moves and he acts. And, and that's why when, when it says he remembers Noah or remembers the Israelites, it doesn't mean that he forgot them any more than he forgets our sins. But when Hebrews says that he doesn't remember our sins, he doesn't remember our transgressions, means he doesn't focus on them any longer. means he doesn't respond to them in judgment anymore. This is why the idea of forgive and forget can be a half-truth that hurts. God doesn't forget. We're not called to adopt some self-induced amnesia and bury our head in the sand or bury past hurts. No, we're called to grapple with them and, and forgive them. It doesn't produce spiritually mature people. It will produce emotionally handicapped people who aren't walking in the full fruit of forgiveness. Because it hurts people like it once did my friend who would say, I don't know that I could ever forget what he did, so I don't know that I can ever forgive him. The second issue, though, in addition to this idea of remembering is simply the idea of trust. Because if you subscribe to forgive and forget, then forgiveness should be somebody's free pass into your circle of trust. We struggle to forgive because I, we think, man, if, if I forgive this person, I will just open myself up to hurt again. They can hurt me again. Because, if, again, if we truly forgive and forget, that means we got to act like nothing happened. And there's a, a full and immediate restoration of the relationship with all the trust and privileges that that includes. But I think we realize that trust is earned over time. And forgiveness is walked out over time. It's a momentary decision, but it's a journey. Sometimes you decide to forgive somebody, and it takes a while for those feelings to catch up to the decision you've made. Give yourself time. But this is where the half-truth can hurt. 
Because if somebody says that they forgave us, we can think, well, then they should trust me. Right? And when, and when they, they're not trusting you right away, you think, oh, that's your problem. You're unforgiving. And the tables get turned. But no, trust takes time. Forgiveness often takes time. When you subscribe to forgive and forget, it makes it sound so easy. Well, come on, you know if you've been hurt in deep ways. No, forgiveness, it takes time. Rebuilding trust takes time. Right? Letting your feelings catch up to that decision sometimes takes time. But, you know, you read Scripture in 2 Timothy 4.14. Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy's pastoring a church, and, and Paul speaks to him about this guy named Alexander. And in 2 Timothy 4.14, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm, but the Lord will judge him for what he has done. But then it says, I think it's the beginning of verse 15, you too should beware of him. You know, Paul had forgiven but he hadn't forgotten. And he was telling Timothy, hey, don't throw him your trust flippantly. Right? Beware. Beware of him. And so we might think, well, how is he, how is he forgiven? But we see that the fact that he was walking in forgiveness because he'd moved on. The consequences, the, the fruit, the justice, he was leaving it in God's hands. He wasn't clinging to that anymore. He trusted God to take care of it. And he wasn't going to let Alexander live rent-free in his mind like we so often do when we don't forgive and we hold to unforgiveness. But, you know, that takes trust in God, not just in other people. That takes trust in God. And it speaks to my third point, which is remembering trust and consequences. Some of us may raise our eyebrows, again, that Paul would say these things about Alexander if he'd truly forgiven him. And it's because we think forgive and forget is kind of like a frozen brand of forgiveness where we got to let it go, like let everything go. All the, the ill will, all the consequences, just let everything go. But the half-truth can hurt us because sometimes we'll repent, we'll ask for forgiveness, and we'll think, God, I repented, but I'm still suffering from the consequences. Right? If you forgive and forget, why am I still dealing with all these consequences of the sin you apparently forgave me of? But again, spiritually, God doesn't forget what we've done, but he does wipe our slate clean. When you step under the cross and accept forgiveness for your sins, God doesn't see your transgressions. No, he sees Jesus Christ's blood and his righteousness. That's the power of salvation and that substitutionary atonement. But in, in this life, in this life, your sins still hurt. They still break things, and there's still consequences. But in this life, forgiveness means you get a second chance. So you still may be walking in the consequences of infidelity. You may still be walking in the consequences of that drunk driving. You may still be walking in the consequences of that lie you told. Right? You may still be walking in those consequences, but those don't have to define you because grace and forgiveness means you get another chance. So the question is, what do you do with that chance? You look again at, at 2 Samuel 12. David is being confronted for his sins with Bathsheba, where in one ordeal, he basically breaks all the Ten Commandments. You're talking adultery, lying, murder, just it goes downhill so fast. And Nathan confronts him in 2 Samuel 12. We don't have time to dig deep into this, but the prophet Nathan confronts him. David says, I'm sorry. He repents. And God forgives him. But there were some serious consequences. The baby that he conceived in adultery with Bathsheba was going to die. And there was ongoing painful consequences that would play out in his family and in his kingdom because of what he did. But he got a second chance. And he laid hold of it. And he doesn't go down in Scripture as David the adulterer. He doesn't go down in Scripture as David the murderer. He goes down in Scripture as David the man who was after God's own heart. He goes down in Scripture in the book of Acts. It says he fulfilled God's purposes for his generation. That's what forgiveness and grace can look like. 
but there's still consequences. You know, sometimes it's important to recognize what something is by recognizing what it's not. Forgiveness is not forgetting and burying our head in the sand. It's not immediate restoration or of trust. It's not the removal of consequences. So I want to close by looking at what it is, but I also want to just let somebody share a story of forgiveness. His name's Drew Elliott. He's been coming here for some time, but he's going to come up. He's, he's going to share his testimony because this is a powerful story of forgiveness. Just give it up for him as he comes up. Um, can you hear me? And uh, real quick, in uh, 2008, I was still active duty in the Coast Guard. And uh, we were out to sea, got into some heavy seas. Actually, it was a hurricane down off of uh, um, the Gulf of Mexico, and it was coming up. And uh, I got tossed out of my rack and basically broke my back. And uh, it was tough. I didn't know God then, of course. I'm you know, I'm a late bloomer. And uh, he always says it's 20 years old, right? That's the average, yeah. I was 40. Anyway, um, but uh, I went in the hospital after we got back from, from uh, being at sea and uh, ended up, I uh, had a couple of vertebrae that had slipped off of each other and had to go get surgery. That kind of surgery... Uh, they cut all the all the muscles in your back, every bit of it, all 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 done. And so I had to learn to walk again. And uh, it was a long time. I was supposed to be eight months off of the ship before I even came back. And it's almost a year, you know. And uh, <clears throat> right after surgery, I started walking the next day five feet, and then five feet back right to the bed. Slept for another 24 hours. The next day, 10 feet out, 10 feet back. Next day. 15 feet out, 15 feet back. I mean, it took a long time to learn to walk again and get up there. A few months went, <clears throat> um, April came around. This happened actually 2008. The surgery was 2008, uh, December. Uh, April comes around, and uh, my doctor says, okay, it's time to, uh, you're doing better. You know, by this time, I'm doing two and a half, three miles of walking every day. He says, you're doing better? Get on your bicycle and let's go ride. I said, great, because I'm a big bike rider. Love to ride. That's my thing. And uh, so I was like, great. So May 2nd, get on the bike for the first time. And it's up in Smithfield. And I, I take off from my house, actually in Carrollton, ride all the way over to Smithfield and back. And I'm a quarter mile from the house. And I get hit by a Dodge truck in an intersection. And T-boned me, not even a bicycle, and, and I had a bruise from my ankle to my rib cage, just one nasty bruise. And uh, it threw me into an intersection. I stiff-armed the intersection, and um, for I was just sort of stunned for a second. The truck stopped. The guy looked at me, long beard, long hair. Um, my wife actually joked, and she said it was probably Jesus, but uh, um, we'll get to that later. Um, he looked at me and realized he was in trouble and swerved around me and took off. And I looked up and got a partial tag number, but I yelled at him and not being the Christian person I was yet, um, some words came out that I don't need to say in here. Um, but he took off and a couple people tried to chase him. They said he was so fast that, you know, he knew he was in trouble and they couldn't catch him. 
Um, there was a part-time nurse who's also a 911 operator who saw the whole thing. So uh, she was able to get the ambulance there pretty quick. And uh, uh, they put me on the stretcher and got my bike clothes on and a neck brace and bruise and go to the hospital. Well, um, that was May 2009. For the next few weeks, I was just angry. I was hurt. Both my knees swelled up. My back was all messed up. I, I basically couldn't walk. I was hurting. And uh, that summer, as I was trying to get better and having frustrations of not getting any better, the Coast Guard's looking at me like, okay, what are we going to do with him? And, uh, and so they start talking about getting rid of me, you know, on a medical discharge and, you know, giving me a nice fat paycheck and that's it. See you later. Nothing. I'm almost at 18 years at this point, 17 years uh, in the Coast Guard. I'm looking forward towards retirement, you know. And um, um, I wanted to kill this guy. I really did. I'm, for me, my forgiveness was with a baseball bat. And actually, I looked for him. I looked for him everywhere. Every dirt road in this county, every backwoods alley, every building, everything I could find, I looked for that truck, I could never find it. There was other people looking, not just me. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I kept a baseball bat in my truck just in case. I wanted to at least break his knees. Um, I was angry. Um, and uh, I realized I couldn't carry it anymore. Um, with the Coast Guard coming down on me, <laughs> um, the doctor's not being able to do anything. My wife's not being able to do anything. There's nobody anywhere that could do anything for me. You know, my life, the way I knew it as a captain, as a boat driver, <clears throat> in the Coast Guard, et cetera, it was over. Every bit of it. You know, everything, my whole life was gone. Done. And, um, and I was hurt. I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't find a guy. I couldn't get revenge. I couldn't get anything, you know. And, uh, and so I finally bent to my knees in the middle of the street, right there in, in Eagle Harbor. And, and I asked God, I said, if you're real, I need you. Um, and it wasn't two weeks after that that I started seeing these weird signs, um, things I'd never seen before. Uh, I was driving down a road in New Yorktown where I was working at the time. It's called Surrender Road. It never occurred to me to surrender my heart. I've been driving down that road for six years. Come on, you know, but I see it now. And I start seeing all these things. Uh, Nike Park, there's a bench about a mile deep in the woods. I've been, that was where I was getting my therapy, walking every day. And there's a bench there. I'd sit down when I was tired and, and, and rest for a second or stretch on it. This time I got in there and someone had inscribed with their knife, Jesus loves you right there on that bench. Whew. I put my hand on it. Something stirred. I didn't know what it was. And uh, I kept seeing these things, you know, motorcycle guys, you know. And then, you know, I get close to them and I see a big cross on their leather jacket and says John 3.16 on the back. And I'm seeing these things everywhere. Some lady parked in front of my house and had a van. And the tag said H-E-V-A-N-S, Heavens. I'm like, come on, what is it? I found it belonged to Helen Evans, who's a friend from next door. But I saw Heavens, <laughs> right? So, you know, I'm just like, whew, I'm seeing things. Maybe I'm just going crazy, right? 
So uh, I, uh, I found a friend of mine on Facebook I hadn't talked to in 20 years. He, uh, 20 years before, he looked at me one day and said, I've got a new life with Christ, and turned and walked away, and I remember that. I remember that envy I felt of him having the courage to stand up to us and turn away from us, the big friend group that we had, and follow a life with Christ. And, you know, and he was young, 20 years old. You know, there you go. And, uh, you know, I'm a slow learner, man. It just happens. But uh, I found him on Facebook, and I told him what was going on. He said, call me. Send me his phone number immediately. We talked for probably an hour and a half. And by the end of it, he's like, and I told him about the signs. He's like, did you ask God into your life? I was like, yes. He goes, well, he's drawing near. That's why you're seeing these signs. He needs you to draw near to him. I was like, how do I do it? He said, there's a book by John Bevere called Drawing Near. And he said, go get it, read it, get back to me, we'll talk about it. And uh, this was September uh, 13th, 2009. I was sitting in my house Sunday morning. My next door is a pastor, been asking us to come to church for a year and a half now. And I didn't want anything to do with Christ at the time or church. So anyway, Sunday morning, September 13th, sitting in the house, reading this book get to the second chapter, it says, go back and read the appendix. There's a prayer back there. Well, I didn't know what that meant, the surrender prayer. By the time I got to the end of the surrender prayer, tears flowing, my life changed. Everything was done, everything. I got saved in my living room by a book. <laughs> and, uh, you know, no preacher standing on stage, no one coming up, you know, not even telling anybody, talking to anybody. And I cried for two hours, three hours straight. And uh, you remember that song, you know, um, the hour I first believed. Oh, my gosh, yes, that hour I first believed, unbelievable. And, and I knew for the first time in my life that was not only was Christ real, but he is alive and working in our lives. And uh, at the end of that prayer, I said, welcome home, welcome back to the family of God. Well, my neighbor has been asking me to go to church, and I was like, i got to go to church. And I, was, you know, I looked at my watch. I, I can make the second service. So I got there, Bethel Temple. And I got to Bethel. First service was still going. I walk in the church, and there's this guy named Coach. He walks up to me and says, welcome home. And I knew right then and there that, that, that God was real. I mean, it's connected, so connected, it was unbelievable. And I could, I'd seen it already. And... Uh, so I get involved at Bethel, meet Steve Ruggiero, and, uh, and got involved with Steve's group, um, you know, and started going every Saturday morning to uh, our men's, or every other Saturday at our men's group there at, at Bethel, and uh, got a really good relationship. Well, a year and a half goes by, a little over a year, um, and a friend of mine at the Coast Guard base that I was working at said, I want you to come to Tuesday night men's group with me. I don't want to go to Tuesday night men's group. I've got a Saturday morning group. I'm good. He kept asking. And this went on for like two months. I was like, fine, I'll go. I'm not going to like it because I know where I want to be here in Steve's group on Saturday morning. So I go, and it's the garage ministry in Smithfield, if you've heard of it. And I went over there, and... I just didn't feel God's presence. I didn't feel like this was my place. My place was Saturday morning. I had already made up my mind before I got there, undoubtedly. And uh, so I go, 
been nothing. I don't, I don't feel anything. I didn't say much at all. Um, one guy that was there asked for prayer, uh, and he was going to going to court um, for something um, accident related, car related, and that was the only guy I really remembered. And uh, and uh, my friend Barry asked me to go back the next week, and I was like, I don't know. And I waited. And he said, kept asking, kept asking. So I go back. Again, I'm not feeling anything. The guy that um, we had prayed for about uh, going to court, I asked uh, uh, Anthony about it. Um, not this Anthony. And, uh, and uh, Anthony Robinette, and he said, uh, I don't know. I've never seen the guy. I don't know what happened. I don't know if he went to court or whatever. And I was like, well, if you see him again, just ask, tell him I was asking about him. So I go home. Now, on my way home, I, uh, I started talking to God in the car. And I was like, God, I just don't feel this is my place. I want to be obedient. This is not me. This is not, you know, I'm just doing this for friends. That's why I'm going this Tuesday night. I just don't feel it. And by the time I get home, that conversation is over with God. That's fine. I've made up my mind. Nothing happened. I go to pray that night. And for the first time in my life, I hear God's voice. And God said, you have to go back there in two weeks. I'm like, what? <laughs> you have to go back in two weeks. I, two weeks, said a third time. And I'm like, okay, I'll go back in two weeks. And I told Steve Rosario, and, and I said, am I going crazy? And he goes, you have to be obedient. You have to go back there in two weeks. Not next week, not three weeks from now, two weeks. It's like, okay. Two weeks comes. My next-door neighbor at the time gave, gave me a book uh, called The Bait of Satan about forgiveness. And it helped me to forgive a lot of things that I had done to other people in my life, um, things I wasn't proud of. But it really just it was a great book. I finished it, was getting ready to go, and I talked to my wife. said, I just don't want to go. It's not my place. And I was getting ready to go that Tuesday night group. So I don't want to go. And she goes, don't go. But then those words from Steve Ruggiero. You have to be obedient. I was like, God, Steve, man. So I go. And so I'm expecting something. I hear from God. He says go. Steve says go. Everyone's saying go. So I go. I'm expecting something. And we listen to uh, some uh, worship music. I hear God's voice again. He said, things are getting ready to get difficult. I'm like, what is it, God? said, things are getting ready to get difficult, but I'm here with you. It's like, what is going on? Music stops. We talk about everything. Some normal Tuesday night. I'm like, well, whatever. I'm, I'm just losing my mind. I'm hearing voices. I don't know what's going on. So I walk out. I'm done. And there's this guy out there waiting for me. And uh, he's like, I don't know how to tell you this. I was like, what is it? He said, I don't know how to tell you. I was like, what is it, man? It's just me, you, and God. He said, I'm the one that hit you. The hit and run driver. I met him at a men's group. And he found me out there, heard my story in the men's group, knew who I was. And, and that book, I don't know what it was, but a thousand emotions must have gone through my head. And I threw my arms around him, and I forgave him. And I said, <laughs> I said, I love you, man. God loves you, and there's nothing between us. 
He wanted to give me money. He wanted to do whatever he could and serve me for the rest of his life. I was like, dude, it's, it's done. I forgive you 100%, and so does God. And all I want from you is to keep coming back. And that's my story about forgiveness. Thank you. I have them share that because you might forget every single thing I say tonight. You're not going to forget that story. Right? The, the Revelation says we overcome by the blood of the land and the word of our testimony. It's a testimony that's been written in his heart that gives God glory. And it glories God because of his forgiveness and because of his mercy and his grace that's supposed to flow from us. And I, and I want to close, and I want to close with this thought that forgiving may not mean forgetting. But forgiving is fueled by remembering. Right? The opposite of forgetting. Forgetting May not be a part of it. Forgiveness is fueled by remembering. Because often like the servant in the parable, we forget the wrong we've done, but we remember what people have done to us. We break this flow of forgiveness. You see the servant choke the other servant, just breaking the flow of forgiveness that had been flowing through that parable. B.C., before Christ drew, driving around in his, his car with a bat. Again, his idea of forgiveness, like he said, was, was breaking this guy's knees. But the drew that had been forgiven by Christ had walked through that. Again, this took time. This is a work that God was doing in his life. But when he encountered the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, he was ready in that moment to forgive that man. Forgiveness isn't always accompanied by forgetting, but it's, it's aided by remembering. You know, the wildest part of the parable that we opened with, to me, it's not the shocking end where he reinstates the debt and sends him to debtor's prison to be tortured. To me, it's, it's so shocking, it's almost comical that this servant who had just been forgiven Hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, wouldn't forgive a debt of just a few thousand. See, when we remember the debt that we couldn't pay, when we remember the cross, we remember what Jesus did for us. And we, we remember not what people did to us, but what Christ did for us. The forgiveness that once seemed impossible suddenly seems possible. You're like, rip me off a of four months pay, I'll probably be angry. But when I remember the 600 million, right, again, I need to remember not often what people did to me, but what Christ did for me. Forgiveness will flow from this remembering, remembering what God forgave us of, remembering the cross. You know, Easter is so powerful because there's this symbol of God's grace, his love, and his forgiveness that we reflect on at Easter, and it's the cross. And Jesus on the cross, when he was paying the price, said, Father, forgive them. There was a price to be paid. It was a price that we couldn't pay like the servant to the king, and the cost is what God paid, the cost of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. What does our king ask of us? Pay it forward. Pay it forward. Give what you've received. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Forgive anyone who offends you. It's not easy. Again, you might say, that's hard. That's hard. What does it say next? Remember. Remember. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. You can forgive anyone who offends me. That's hard. But we can remember Jesus on the cross as he was walking out forgiveness said, Father, forgive. You know, the Bible speaks again and again about sharing in Christ's suffering. It talks about it in 2 Corinthians 1, 1 Peter 4, Romans 8, again and again in the New Testament. It talks about sharing in Christ's suffering. And when I think of that, I think of, of persecution, right, being spat at for my faith or what's going on in different countries where people are being physically persecuted for their faith. 
But Christ suffered so greatly because he was walking out forgiveness. Walking out forgiveness, again, is not as quick and easy as forgive and forget may make it sound. It may feel like death at times, but it's the death that precedes resurrection and life. If I could have the worship team come up, you know, unforgiveness is like wearing chains and expecting the person that we're not forgiving to be bound. I heard, I think it was T.D. Jakes who said it's like drinking poison, expecting it to hurt the other person when we don't forgive them, when we walk in unforgiveness. But I will tell you tonight, if you're walking in unforgiveness, lay that down. And it's not quick, it's not easy, but it's so worth it. Because the truth that we walk in, the truth that sets us free is that there's freedom in forgiveness, even when it's hard. And just as powerful as Jesus' death and resurrection, it points us to the forgiveness and grace and goodness of God. When, when you forgive somebody, when you hear a story like Drew's about forgiveness, or when you actively forgive somebody, show them grace, show them mercy, it doesn't only just heal that horizontal relationship, but it so often reminds them of the vertical relationship with God that through his grace and through his forgiveness that they can have. It glorifies God and it glorifies Jesus. But if we could stand as we're about to go into worship. The Hiltons are going to be in the back. They would love to pray for you. I'd love to pray for you up here. And just two things as we close and as we reflect. Maybe the forgiveness that needs to flow is forgiveness from you to others. And you've been wearing the chains of unforgiveness. And maybe it's been for a long time. I was talking to somebody before service. Somebody done something to them that hurt them at age 12. And just recently... They'd walked in forgiveness for that. Might be old, might be new. But don't carry that weight of unforgiveness, thinking that it's, it's going to help you be free. There's freedom that's found in forgiveness. But maybe, maybe you're like Drew at the beginning of his story, that you haven't tasted the forgiveness of the cross and stepped under the grace of Jesus Christ. And if that's you tonight, you've never prayed for forgiveness, you've never repented, Bible says, it says in Hebrews 8, that he'll, he will no longer remember our sins. Meaning that that will no longer be the focus. It will no longer define us. He'll no longer act in judgment upon them. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, he's the righteousness of Christ rather than our transgressions. It's the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that all of us would respond again to that. Respond again to his goodness, his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness. Whatever we need to confess, we'd lay down. Whatever we've been clinging to in terms of unforgiveness, we'd lay down. Whether you need to do it in prayer, just do it in your pew as you're singing. Maybe come up to the altar and kneel. Whatever it is, let's take this time of worship to come before God. Let's worship him tonight. Father 